This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. It's like something out of a Kafka novel. Someone is accused of a crime, but they're mentally ill, so they can't stand trial until they get treatment. Problem is, that treatment doesn't come quickly, and so they sit in jail and wait. That is the picture Colorado's public defenders paint in dozens of motions they've filed recently, asking judges to release their clients immediately. CPR's justice reporter Allison Sherry is investigating. Hi, Allison. Good morning, Ryan. Let's start with something basic. These are inmates who need what's called competency restoration. Explain that for us. Okay, so someone is arrested and an expert decides, you know, their lawyer would call for a competency evaluation. An expert decides they're not mentally competent to face criminal charges against them. It could be for trespassing in a safe way or robbing a bank or murdering someone. It could be for anything. And so they're deemed mentally incompetent. They become wards of the State Department of Human Services. And this is the branch of state government responsible for restoring them to competency so they can face those criminal charges. It doesn't really mean mental health treatment. It just means getting them to a place where they can understand the charges against them and participate in their own defense. As you've been reporting, the state is often failing to get people those services quickly. How long are they waiting in jails? Well, for some people, it's been months. One guy was in the Glenwood Springs jail for more than 200 days, actually. And this is really frustrating for their lawyers, the vast majority of whom are public defenders. Here's Maureen Kane. She's a policy liaison at the state public defender's office. And many of them are there for very, very low-level offenses. And they're being held in jail for way longer than a person who did not suffer from mental illness would be in custody. So they are being incarcerated because of their mental illness, not really because of the crime they committed. So the point is, some of these people are spending way more time waiting for competency restoration than they would have if they just would have been able to plead guilty the first day they were arrested, especially for these low-level crimes. And once they're deemed incompetent, they lose that option. Wait, they lose the option to plead guilty? They, They can't go forward with their proceedings in the criminal justice system until they're restored to competency. And I actually read a court transcript of one man who was sitting in the Denver jail for months. He was begging a judge to let him plead guilty just so he could get out of jail. And the judge, he wasn't allowed to. Again, that could result in a shorter time in jail if they could just plead guilty than the time they are waiting to be restored to competency. Exactly. So now public defenders are actually asking judges to let their clients out. How does that work? Well, so what they've done is they've figured out how many of their clients have been sitting in jail longer than a month waiting for this competency restoration. And for those people, they've started filing requests for transport orders. They basically are asking judges to get their clients out of jail, either by ordering them to a mental hospital or some outpatient treatment within a few days or just letting them out on bond. And defenders all of a sudden have kind of mobilized and filed a lot of these requests, like 60 or 70 in the last four weeks. Okay, so it looks like a movement. Are judges Mm -hmm. granting these requests? Well, it's been a mixed bag so far. This is pretty new. Um, Some judges are ordering people out of jail. They're annoyed. They want people moved out. Some judges are... Citing more with the Department of Human Services saying, you know, when they get a space in Pueblo, we'll move, they'll be moved and I'm not going to do anything about it right now. That's one of the mental health facilities. That's one of the mental health facilities. Uh-huh. Um, and then some judges are calling the state to they're, they're calling actually witnesses in, in, for the state to see what's going on, saying, like, you know, how long is this going to take? We need to move these people through. It's definitely a movement, though, and it's across the state. Okay. This is Lucy Ohanian. She works at the public defender's office, and she's spearheading this effort. I think judges both are worried about the individual defendant. They're also worried about the 
uh, efficient administration of their court dockets where they have people whose cases are routinely being reviewed every 90 days without any change in circumstance. And so these orders are one way judges can ensure that people are getting their, their treatment and also getting their cases resolved efficiently. And just to make it clear, this isn't a Denver thing or a front-range thing. Public defenders across the state are filing these transport orders, and um, there probably isn't a jail in the state that hasn't had to deal with this. I keep wondering, how did the state get to this point? I mean, why is it so hard for them to deal with people efficiently? Well, one undisputable, undisputable fact is that the numbers have gone way up, some 900 percent increase since 2000 in competency restoration orders. But the state, but how the state's handling that increase is what the, you know, sort of the big problem is. State officials say they didn't see this huge number coming. They don't have the money. They don't have the the bed space in mental health hospitals to sort of help all these people within a month of them being deemed incompetent. Um, And they are ultimately responsible for keeping the public safe. But disability advocates would say the states really lacked creativity in dealing with this crisis. You know, that's asking for others for help, using more outpatient treatment centers, especially for people who have sort of chart like low-level charges against them. Mm -hmm. And the one thing defense lawyers say is that a lot of these people just shouldn't have been ever be in the criminal justice system. They should be diverted into a mental health care. You know, they should have their criminal charges dropped and maybe have some court-ordered treatment somewhere. And they don't understand why the Department of Human Services hasn't tried to make that case for to district attorneys, you know, prosecuting these charges. Now, this is bigger than individual cases. You've been reporting on a federal lawsuit against the state on this issue which says Colorado is violating its own policies for how fast people need to get into treatment. Where does that stand? So it's a a whole different thing, but it's on the exact same issue. Disability Law Colorado keeps suing the state on this, and they're actually on their fourth lawsuit at this point. There was another hearing on Friday in federal court, and the case is moving forward. Any important developments? Well, the judge set a five-day trial in March, and just last night she ruled that the state had to come up with a plan by mid-December to try to get back into compliance. Getting back into compliance means they, these people will be treated within a month. A month. And the judge was testy. I mean, she was really a, a, a visibly annoyed on Friday at this whole cycle, which is, you know, the state gets sued. They come to some settlement agreement. They say, oh, we're going to treat these people within 30 days. And then they violate that. More people are waiting. And then they get sued again. This keeps happening over and over and over. And her first question was how many people have currently been sitting in jail for more than a month? And actually, the lawyers on Friday couldn't answer that question because no one at the Department of Human Services was even at the table. Huh. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner and CPR's justice reporter Allison Sherry joins us. We're talking about how people with mental illness often languish in jails awaiting uh, restoration to competency so they can stand trial. Allison, what would you say is the worst case scenario for the state here? I mean, if it doesn't get into compliance, say, by uh, this month or next, what can the judge do? Well, these kinds of lawsuits have happened in other states, and they have resulted in daily fines for state officials. So, you know, the judge says, if you aren't getting people moved out of jail within a, within a month, you're going to face a $10,000 daily fine. So I think that threat's looming over everyone, including those at the legislature. But before that things get to that, the uh, disability advocates are asking the judge to appoint a special master, kind of an independent person who knows the issue, who could generate reports on numbers, and even give some advice to the Department of Human Services. Maybe bring some of that creativity that critics say lacks in this process. We've been talking a lot about the legal side of things, but this really comes down to human beings. I mean, people with serious mental illness. You have met some families 
uh, whose loved ones have been in jail for these long stretches just share some of their stories. Yeah, and that's, I mean, this this story resonates for me when I talk to these people. Um, it's kind of hard to picture the system, right? It's like it's easier to picture the system when you talk to people who are, you know, being affected by it. And a lot of these families, I've talked to a lot of mothers, a few dads too, but a lot of mothers, their kids are mentally ill. They get arrested for something small, like trespassing or a fight mm. over a cheeseburger at a restaurant or something. And then something may happen, like they may spit, they might be having a psychotic episode. They spit on a cop. They spit on an, an ambulance driver. That's a felony charge. Then they sit in jail for months. They're waiting for competency restoration. And obviously, if this person wasn't mentally ill, they got arrested about a fight over a cheeseburger, they wouldn't sit in jail for five or six months waiting to see what happens. The parents go visit. They go to the court hearings. But they're just waiting, and it's really frustrating. This is a mother I talked to. Her name's Pat. We're not going to use her last name to protect her son. And she talked about the panic she felt when he was sent to jail after mental health breakdown. I became frantic. I called the governor's office. I called our legislative representatives and senators. I called uh, the Office of Behavioral Health. I called the state hospital. I called private psychiatric facilities. He's got insurance. I called his insurance provider. I called everybody I could think of, and nobody could do anything. I should say this woman's son is now out of jail. He's working through some court-ordered treatment. But the thing about jail, you have to remember, is that they're kind of damaging places. They're not treatment centers. People aren't getting necessarily proper medication inside. They're not getting treatment. Very few people walk out of jail better than they were before they went in. Um, And going back to that federal court hearing, a lot of these parents have shown up in these courtrooms um, at various stages to watch the proceedings. I mean, it's kind of dry, right? It's a federal magistrate. It's the state versus Disability Law Colorado. And all these parents are sitting in the front row. Um, This woman who we just heard from was at the hearing on Friday, and I Uh, talked to her. And she was, you know, heartened at the judge's annoyance, and she was hoping that this that that would all all of this would kick the state into gear. I think about the regime change that's about to happen. So right. a new governor coming in, a new attorney general, uh, who would presumably be responsible for defending this state in court on this. Any idea what they'll do? Well, you know, we know there's going to be new leadership at the Department of Human Services. Um, I assume they'll and they inherit this huge problem. So you assume or you hope that someone's going to try to address it. Um, how Wiser is going to be handling the defense compared to the current A.G. Kaufman, I really don't know. But it is interesting that a trial is set in March and all new people are going to be at the table. Okay, that's Phil Wiser, the new attorney general. Yeah. Thanks, Allison. Thank you. Allison Sherry covers criminal justice for CPR News. It's the letters that Walker Stapleton will cherish most, letters he received from his cousin, George H.W. Bush. Stapleton, Colorado's outgoing treasurer, always called Bush Uncle George. And the first letter came the day after Stapleton was born. He wrote a letter to my parents and said, if you ever need somebody to take care of Walker, please drop him off with us to love and care for him. And I have saved as some of the most precious things that I have in my life, uh, dozens of letters that he wrote me, um, including when a kid was bullying me in in grade school, and he talked about what it meant to be a bigger man than the bullies to times that he spent as vice president and president, and then after his presidency, and I will cherish those letters because he was a voracious letter writer, and 
letter writing is a dying art form. The late President Bush, who died last week at age 94, will be laid to rest Thursday in Texas in a private service after a funeral at the National Cathedral tomorrow in Washington, D.C. President Trump has declared Wednesday a day of mourning. Walker Stapleton says Bush instilled in him a duty to serve. He led a life of service to others by example, and he often said, that any definition of a successful life must at some point include service to others. And he didn't just mean service in elected office. He meant philanthropic service, whether it be volunteering at a food bank or finding a way to give back to your community and your state and your country. And he's somebody that did that through 70 years of service to our country, the youngest naval aviator shot down in the Pacific in World War II. Stapleton, who lost a pretty ugly fight to be Colorado's next governor in last month's midterm election, hopes the death of his Uncle George might remind Americans of what they have in common. The country has become so divided, so partisan, so angry at one another, and people have become angry at their neighbors and uh, at their fellow Coloradans. And I hope that all of us can collectively use his passing and the example he set during the course of his life to remember what it actually means to be brought together. We found footage from C-SPAN of George H.W. Bush in Denver, stumping for his son's re-election in October 2004. He reflects on divisions in the country back then, in a way that might sound familiar a decade and a half later. You will hear him reference the documentary filmmaker Michael Moore, who that year released a film critical of George W. Bush. One serious word. I don't ever remember the political climate. I hope it's different here in Colorado. The political climate is being nasty and as ugly and as mean-spirited as it is. For nine months before the Democrats had a nominee, all eight of the guys wanting to be the nominee did nothing but tear down the president of the United States. And, and I am sick and tired of it, and I want to see uh, Michael Moore, if you'll excuse the expression, go back and... Go back and live out there with those Hollywood. When he, when he appeared in the, in, the, in the box with Jimmy Carter at the Democratic National Convention, I said, what the heck's going on in this country? And so, so we'll send him a message. We love our country. We're going to keep our president. If Michael Moore doesn't like it, too darn bad. Let me tell you something. People forget that when the president came to office... Uh, the economy was going into recession. All the indicators were there. Uh, terrorists had already attacked several years before the World Trade Center once and killed hundreds of Americans abroad. And the corporate scandals of 1990s were starting to come to light. And four years later, despite a recession, despite the 9-11 attacks and those scandals, our economy has created nearly two million new jobs. The national unemployment rate is lower than it was in 1996 when President Clinton ran for re-election. And we've taken the fight to the terrorists, and we're going to win that fight. And we're going to liberate, have already liberated over 50 million people in the process. And for all the critics and the, all the critics and the liberal elite with the New York Times, let me tell you something. Saddam Hussein is in a prison and he's no longer torturing and brutalizing his own people. 
At the end of his 2004 speech at the Wings Over the Rockies Museum in Denver, former President George H.W. Bush was moved to tears talking about his son, George W. In these uncertain times, these times of trial, remember what Lincoln said, you can't be president unless you spend some time on your knees in prayer. But, but in, these, in these times, our president has not faltered, and he has not wavered, and he does not feel sorry for himself. And in our darkest hour, he put his arm around this country, lifted us up, and assured the people that we're, we're, we're going to make it strong. George H.W. Bush speaking in Denver in 2004. The late president will be remembered during a funeral at the National Cathedral in Washington, D.C. tomorrow before he's laid to rest during a private service in Texas Thursday. His cousin, Walker Stapleton, helped us remember him. Parents who are refugees have to overcome huge barriers to be a part of their children's education. Teachers speak a different language, and there are strange new rules and customs. It's a struggle for refugee students as well. CPR education reporter Jenny Brundine has the story of one mother's journey. Before fifth-grade teacher Gracie Binder can start her next parent-teacher conference, there's something she has to do. For Vietnamese, press 3. For Somali... Call for an interpreter. Hi, um, I need a Burmese interpreter, please. The young mom in front of her, Husanara Makbul Hussein, wears an embroidered dress, a teal hijab, and a Western-touch running shoes. Makbul Hussein spent 13 years as a refugee in Malaysia after fleeing severe repression in Burma. The family came to the U.S. in 2016. Binder starts the conference with Makbul Hussein's daughter, Siti, reading to her. I like to make more friends in the school. My f- okay. Will you interpret that? Gracie Binder tells Makbul Hussein her daughter is doing very well in her class at Kenton Elementary. Through the interpreter, Makbul Hussein tells Binder, yes, CT's improving in reading and spelling, but struggles with math. I tried to help her. She couldn't understand me. I couldn't understand her. Makbul Hussein shows the teacher a video of Siti at home. She's tearfully erasing and trying. Makbul Hussein knows this is her moment now to push for what her daughter needs, to ask for more support. Two years ago, Makbul Hussein wouldn't have been able to do this. Back at her Aurora apartment, through an interpreter, she tells me what school was like for her children at the beginning. At first, she was very excited, but after... The first week, the second week, and the third weeks, and it became a month, and she started to notice the kids' behavior at home. Her school-age daughters seemed deflated, depressed, lacking energy. One day, CD, the oldest, didn't want to go to school. When I was, like, in second grade, I'm not feeling good because I feel sad because I don't have any friends, and I get shy, and I don't know how to speak English. CD only got a little bit of education until she was eight. When she didn't want to go to school, Makbul Hussein didn't know what to do. Because since she came from a different country, if she approached the school, will the school treat her right? And because of not knowing all of those information, it makes it very sad and very scary at the same time. Families are the true definition. It was then Makbul Hussein discovered Rise Colorado. 
of those who are educated, engaged, and empowered to rise as change agents for education. It helps empower low-income families in Aurora to help their kids in school. Families are the sleeping giant. That's what Veronica Crespin-Palmer, the co-founder of RISE, believes. When families know how to navigate the school system, when families know how to talk to principals and teachers and advocate for their children, they will change their life forever through education. When families first join RISE, they learn what the stats show, that in a large room full of families, just a few children will make it to college, that parents must partner with teachers for their child to succeed. It's an emotional night. Veronica Crespin-Palmer saw something in Makbul Hussein. Incredibly smart, incredibly perceptive, and is taking everything in and is hungry to learn. And this is her family's chance. That's when Makbul Hussein saw school information wasn't translated in her language. And then she was pretty much asking Rice, uh, we don't see our language here. Is there anything that we can work together to make this happen? Veronica Crespin-Palmer says that began the transformation from refugees parent to advocate. She was powerful. She spoke at the school board meetings. She spoke to school board members. So she was a force in this campaign. Makbul Hussein and other refugee and immigrant parents pushed for better translation services in the Aurora District, where families come from 130 countries. They speak 150 languages. Now, Makbul Hussein gets calls and information in Burmese. So when she saw I have a voice and people are listening. I'm stepping into my power and it's working. I'm changing Aurora Public Schools not only for my three children, but for my neighbor, for my friend across the street. Makbo Hussein also attended Rise's Literacy and Math Nights. She learned specific activities to help her children learn at home. Everybody watching. Everybody's. Makbul Hussein doesn't speak English, but she's learned enough about the sounds and letters to help her daughters with reading. And if they get stuck on a word, a cell phone app does the trick. At parent-teacher conference night, it's evident that teachers at Kenton are attentive and caring. Sometimes, though, there are glitches. So we try to get these translated. Is this the correct language? No. A translation effort for BV's report card didn't work. The district's centralized language center could have helped with that. Makbul Hussein is gracious, but doesn't seem satisfied when she hears BV is behind in a few areas. She asks for more homework. Yeah, and I'll make sure that I send home some more writing homework for her, but I don't think her writing is very below grade level. I think she's actually. They try to reassure Makbul Hussein that her daughter is showing progress. Veronica Crespin-Palmer says there's a survival mentality many refugee parents exhibit. As a parent, hearing your child is behind, you go into panic mode of like, well, what am I doing wrong? What can I do better? Give me more homework so I can do more at home to help my child because I got to make sure they have every advantage, every opportunity. And if there's more I can do, give it to me. Makbul Hussein shows that same panic with Gracie Binder at their parent-teacher conference and the video of her eldest daughter, Siti, struggling with math. I would say if you ever see this again of Siti crying, because that's not what we want either, stop her, okay? Because that should never be what homework is working on. Akbul Hussein starts to cry in front of the teacher. It's hard for her to relax. Binder then explains an approach to the math problem that will help. 
and the fifth grade teacher returns the conference to what it was intended for, a celebration of how far CT has come. She's showing good academic growth. Binder saves the best for last, what she calls her most important grade. Who is CT as a person? And across the board, she is kind, hardworking, friendly, and incredibly creative. You have an amazing daughter, Husanara. Husanara Makbul Hussein smiles. She'll be in the school another hour. But by the end of the conferences, she'll know more about how her children are doing and what she can do to help them succeed. I'm Jenny Rendine, Colorado Public Radio News. A for the apple, ah, apple. B for the C for the cat, cat. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Hey, I'm Jesse Witten from Colorado Public Radio's Open Air and one of the hosts of our brand new podcast, The Playlist League. What I love about this is it takes something as beautifully subjective and personal as music and makes it into a battle royale. It's a music conversation, but done competitively as we draft playlists song by song according to a theme each month. So if you like music discovery, bloodthirsty competition, or even just a fun, casual hang session with some fellow music lovers, check out the Playlist League from CPR's Open Air. You're with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Now an existential question for dog owners. If your dog poops on a walk, is it okay to throw the bag in someone else's trash? The debate is now raging on Nextdoor. It's a neighborhood app. Michael Gutman of Fort Collins posted a poll there on this subject after an unpleasant interaction with a neighbor. Hi, Michael. Hey, how are you doing, Ryan? I'm doing okay. First off, what happened with this neighbor? Well, a great question, and I guess it's your definition of neighbor, as I was about two miles from my home. Ah. As I was walking my pooch, Wyatt, of course, he had to do his business like many dogs need to do. So he did his business, and as a responsible neighbor, I picked up after him. Um, It happened to be garbage day, and I was, again, about two miles from my home, about a mile away from any public garbage can that I was at least aware of, and I saw a garbage can on the curb. So I thought, hey, I've got garbage in my hand. There's a garbage can. I'll throw it away. So I did. And as I started walking away, about half a block down, I see my dog's ears perk up and look behind me. And I hear the neighbor whose can I had just deposited the poop bag into was yelling at me and said, hey, this isn't your garbage can. You can't put your garbage in here. And I said, well, hey, it was garbage on the ground. I picked it up. I put it into the can. That's where it belongs, right? And I walked quickly away because, quite frankly, this neighbor was getting a little bit heated and I wasn't quite ready for such a confrontation. And as I was walking away, I started to think to myself, was I in the wrong here? Hmm. So I decided to post the poll on next door and let's just say many, many other people decided to get into the conversation. Yes, which is typical, actually, for next door, which can devolve quickly, although there, there has been some constructive feedback. Okay, let me let me pick apart your story there. You've given us a couple of cues, I think, that feel important to me. One, you mentioned that it was trash day. Do you think that's important? You know, after listening to all of the different comments that I received on Nextdoor, there seemed to be a consensus. And the split was about 80% people saying, yes, they are okay with others putting dog poop bags in their can. 80%? No. And 20%? Mm -hmm. 
And what I learned from the comments is that most people, you know, after they're listening to other people respond, their neighbors respond, seem to be okay with people putting dog poop in their trash bins if they're out on the curb and if the trash has not been picked up yet already, meaning that dog poop is not going to be sitting in that can for a week. That seemed to be the consensus. Now, of the 80% who said it's okay if you deposit your dog's due in my receptacle, what were their reasons for wanting that to be open? I'll give you a few comments. So somebody said, you know, if it stops people from just throwing them on the ground, please use my trash can. Mm. Another person, it's a garbage can. It will smell. Please leave all the poops in my can if it means I don't have to see another bag of crap festering next to a trail. And then there were some people who said, you know, maybe if the can has not been emptied yet, I see no problem. However, if it's empty, I'd prefer not to have a bag of poop placed in it to wait for a whole week. Yeah, that important. Those were some of the reasons for that maybe and yes. And for the 20% who said no way, no how, what were their reasons? A couple struck out. I think for some people, they didn't want anybody trespassing on the property, right? If the cans had been on their on their driveway, they didn't want anybody coming up to their cans. Some others said, I'm not okay with it because someone put it in my recycling bin once. So I think there's confusion of which bins these things belong in. And another person said, no, I'm not okay with the dogs pooping on my lawn either. And I don't have a dog. So I think having a dog and being a dog owner had something to do with it. Ah, influenced people's perspectives here. If only there were a way to designate receptacles as places of safe harbor for dog poop, but you actually have an idea to this end. I do, and I can't take credit for the idea, but it it really comes from the fact of consent. And it's as basic as a sticker. If you can have a sticker that says, yes, you can put your dog poop bags in my can, I think we can solve this problem. And those stickers already do exist, actually. I checked on Amazon. I wonder if you've come to any realizations because of, of this whole process. You know, I have. In thinking about whether I was in the right or whether I was in the wrong, I think about all the trash that exists in my community, whether it be dog poop or whether it be a plastic bottle or whether it be a straw on the ground. And if we as conscious citizens think about picking this stuff up, I think the next question is, where's it going to go? And if we want to live in a community where we have easy access to garbage and picking up the trash around our communities, I think it's on us to decide if we want to crowdsource our garbage cans. Now, have you had any further interactions online or in person with this fellow Fort Collinsian? (laughs) I have not. I don't necessarily know that it's in my best interest to go knocking on that neighbor's door to tell them the, the fallout of this conversation and this, as you put, existential question. I'll have to consider that one, Ryan. Okay, and pet that pooch for me. What does your dog look like, by the way? Well, he gets all sorts of handsome compliments whenever we go out. He is a Siberian Husky mixed with some American Staffordshire Terrier mixed with some Mountain Dog. So he is a a gorgeous-looking mutt. Thanks for being with us. Take care. Michael Gutman of Fort Collins, owner of Wyatt. Gutman posted a poll on the Nextdoor app about whether it's okay to throw your dog's leavings in someone else's trash. Special thanks, by the way, to the Coloradoan newspaper for help with the story. They made history last night in the small northern Colorado town of Severance. A nine-year-old boy thought he should be allowed to throw a snowball. 
Yes, up until last night, it was illegal to have a snowball fight in Severance. Before the town board, third grader Dane Best read from the ordinance he wanted to change. It is unlawful for any person to throw or shoot any stone or other missile upon or at any person, animal, building, tree, or other public or private property. Apparently, the way the law was written, snowballs were classified as missiles. Best made his case last night at a packed meeting. He even had a PowerPoint presentation. The definition of a snowball fight. A snowball fight is a physical game in which balls of snow are thrown in the intention of hitting someone else. The game is similar to dodgeball. In its major factors, though typically less organized, this activity is primarily played during winter when there is sufficient snowfall. As part of his argument, he emphasized how important it is for children to play outside and that snowball fights are a part of the Colorado culture. Then came the grilling from the town board. My question to you is, if we do enact snowball fighting, um, have you talked to your fellow students about the safety issues? No, not really. That's very fair. Best acknowledged that during snowball fights, there ought to be no face shots or rocks in the snow. After a brief deliberation, the town trustees repealed the snowball ban with a unanimous vote. Trustee Duda? Yes. Trustee Beasler? Yes. Mayor McLeod? Absolutely. <laughs> Trustee Florquist? Yes. Trustee King? Yes. It sounds like you have a unanimous pass. Sounds like you've just changed the law, buddy. Afterwards, Severance's mayor presented Best with his first legal snowball, which he threw in the town hall parking lot. The whole thing became a living civics lesson. I learned that you can change the law and you can have a voice in your town when you're little. I thought you had to be like 18 to do it, but... But Dane Best isn't stopping there. He has his eyes on changing another Severance law dealing with pets. You can only have a dog and a cat and you can't have like... Any other pet except, except for a dog and a cat. And, you're not, and you can't have more than three of them. Best has a guinea pig, so he's technically breaking the law. Again, that was nine-year-old Dane Best of Severance, Colorado. Today, we're going to answer some of your questions about Denver streets. These questions have been coming in through Colorado Wonders, and CPR's digital producer, Alex Scoville, has been finding the answers. Hi, Alex. Hi, Ryan. Let's start with a question from Claire Opal. She heard that Denver streets are named after concubines. Is this true? Unfortunately not. It's okay. not... <laughs> <laughs> I like how you secretly hope for that to be the case. Okay. It's not that interesting, but Denver's red light district did play a big role in naming one street in Denver, actually. Uh, Market Street, as we know it today, around Union Station, which re- was originally known as McGaw Street, which was a, one of Denver's leading founders. However, he had a pretty bad reputation himself. He was a bit of a drunkard, a habitual adulterer. And so they revoked his name and they renamed it after a well-to-do family called the Holidays. However, by the 1870s and the 1880s, Holiday Street was the center of the so-called Bordello District. Uh-huh. 
One writer even called it as having the reputation of being one of the wildest, most open, and dissolute prostitution strips in the country. Obviously, the holidays didn't like that, so they petitioned the city. And by 1887, it was renamed Market Street. Pronounce that first street name again. McGaw Street. McGaw. How is that spelled? M-C-G-A-A. M-C-G-A-A. Okay. Now on to a question from Brad, who lives in Park Hill in Denver. He wants to know who came up with the naming convention east of Denver City Park. Oh, he's talking about the double alphabet streets, mm-hmm. isn't he? See if you can guess the theme, Ryan. Okay. It's Albion, Ash, Bel Air, Birch, Claremont, and Cherry. It's so funny. I have passed those streets a million times, and it's only upon hearing you read them out loud. The second ones are trees. Exactly. Okay. And the first ones are proper nouns, preferably British. That was the style that Charles Stoll invented when he renamed those streets in the 1890s, I believe. Okay, those are the streets east of Denver City Park. Two listeners are wondering about the streets west of Broadway. There's a naming pattern with those two, Alex, I I guess with some notable exceptions, though. Yes. So Henry C. Maloney, who sort of revitalized the street system in Denver, he named those streets after regional Native American tribes like Zunai, Pecos, all of that. However, because he was worried about pronunciation in the coming years, he skipped G and J and named them Galapagos for the islands and Jason for the Argonauts, the Greek myth. Okay. And the pronunciations of some of those streets are particularly inventive because that becomes Galapago. Mm-hmm. And of course, I've heard plenty of people refer to Zuni as Zunai. Yeah. I mean, moving here from Arizona, I've been so confused about how to say so many street names. We also have some people wondering about the layout of streets. Yeah. So when Denver was originally founded, it was a couple tinier townships called Auraria and Denver City. Mm-hmm. And they were on either side of the Cherry Creek. And cities back then, especially mining towns like Denver was, they were often laid out among bodies of water. So actually, those streets are parallel to Cherry Creek and the Platte River. But by that time, the federal government was already playing around with more cardinal direction streets. And so when future parcels of land were bought out, including the 160-acre one that became Capitol Hill, more developers preferred that one. And so that's why they kind of run up against each other. Right. It's almost like uh, the town pivots as you get downtown. Exactly. So that's the difference of 10 years of development, really, from the first early streets to later in the 80s, 1880s. (laughs) Is is it your intention to blow my mind because you're doing that, Alex? I'm trying to. Okay. Uh, Two more questions. Catherine Dudden wants to know why the streets in downtown in particular are so wide. Yeah. This is not unique to Denver or Colorado. Many streets in older cities like this are wider simply because horse carriages needed more room to turn around and for people to park their horses on the side of the road without taking up too much space. I remember there was a really bad winter and all of downtown was essentially shut down. I snowshoed. Right down 17th in downtown. I remember thinking this is such a wide street. I would pay for a video of that. Another question. What happened to the traffic lights at the old Barnes intersections? What does this person mean, Barnes intersections? He means the Barnes dance intersections, which I just learned about today because I moved here pretty recently. These are the ones that allow you to cross diagonally, not just like straight across? Exactly. And they were popularized in Denver before spreading to New York and Tokyo and other big cities across the world. However, Denver got rid of them in 2011 um, because city engineers don't really consider them efficient anymore. Oh. And this person was specifically wondering if the traffic lights had not been changed. They actually were in May 2011. So don't worry. Okay. So the Barnes dance, uh, that was removed. And so was all the equipment associated exactly. with it. Exactly. They were retimed to go from 75 to 90 seconds, I believe, especially as the light rail was coming in. Cars need a bit more time. Well, thanks for this. Well, thank you, Ryan. 
CPR's Alex Scoville answering questions about Denver's streets through Colorado Wonders. So what do you wonder about in our state? Ask, and we shall answer. Head to CPR.org. It is the holiday shopping season, the single most important stretch for retailers. But every year, online sales eat into the profits of brick-and-mortar stores. Even in Denver's hot economy, some business owners are bracing for a down year. Here's CPR business reporter Ben Marcus. At a children's store in Denver, the first thing to greet you is... An adorable little dog. You are adorable. This is Aloysius, and he's normally friendly. Robin Laurie runs this charming little shop called Tallulah Jones, and she focuses on non-electronic toys, children's clothes, and books... Lori says sometimes customers apologize for taking too much time in the store. And it's like, for me, that's the biggest compliment. Oh my goodness, you're taking it all in. You're appreciating, you're loving the experience, the community. Those are the things that help set her apart. However, she says sales are down 3% this year on top of 3% last year, which she says is a shift. Um, I think we're we're struggling in the new economy of Amazon and free shipping, and um, I think that impacts the brick-and-mortar stores. Shoppers here have money, but it looks like they're buying online. DU professor Ali Besherat says a recent report on Cyber Monday sales showed that Colorado was among the top three biggest online sales markets that day. So th- this is a sign showing that the economy is doing good and obviously customers feel more conf- uh, comfortable and confident spending their money for their holiday shopping. And they're increasingly doing it on their phone and desktop. Online sales in the U.S. are up about 15% a year. The holiday season is expected to surpass $1 trillion in sales this year. And brick and mortar still represents more than 90% of retail. Besherat says that could explain why Amazon opened its third physical store in the Park Meadows Mall last month. And I think that was a really good move, especially for certain products that are experiential, that customers want to touch and feel. Um, I thought that was a very interesting move by Amazon and actually kind of scary for um, the other stores in the mall, too. But it's hard to know what to make of Amazon's four-star store. It's filled to the brim with some of the online retailers' most popular products. Blenders, iPhone cases, Roombas. And the store's inventory is always changing based on what's hot. Joe Hill from Denver looked like a kid in a candy store. It seems a little overwhelming. Uh, Not really. If you're an Amazon shopper, it really isn't overwhelming. You're just kind of like walking around, seeing the stuff physically, touching it, as opposed to going online. It's curious, though, that Amazon opened in a mall. Mall vacancies nationwide spiked after the Great Recession, and they never recovered, thanks in part to Amazon. An executive from Amazon told me that they chose Park Meadows in the South Metro area because it's not struggling. There's no vacant space, and it's surrounded by affluent neighborhoods. The growth of e-commerce also demands warehouse space. In Denver's case, millions of additional square feet. A whole new shopping infrastructure is building up around the ease of a click. A drastic change in consumer preferences and consumer behavior. is, And that's, what, uh, that's what's driving the, the construction and, and change. Tyler Carner is a specialist in industrial properties for CBRE. E-commerce isn't new, but he says their entrance into Denver is. So really, the e-commerce companies are just late to come to Denver. Um, they've been doing it in other markets like New York and Atlanta and Dallas and Los Angeles for you know a good four to five years. So we're just uh, kind of new on the scene. 
Amazon alone has added more than 2,000 workers in Colorado, mostly in a pair of high-tech warehouses in Aurora and Thornton. The scale of online retail is mind-boggling to Robin Laurie, who runs the small children's store in Denver. She says she's never bought anything on Amazon because she believes so strongly in supporting small business. Getting out there and, and making your vote count as far as your dollars is, is the ticket to keeping people and stores like this going. She hopes to leave the store to her daughter to run someday and wants to believe that there are enough customers who prefer the small, personal touch to keep it going. I'm Ben Marcus, CPR News. In classical music, there's just one big piece about Hanukkah, and it was written by a Christian. CPR's Rebecca Romberg tells us about its origins with help from classical host David Ginder and some special young guests. George Friedrich Handel is famous for his oratorios, especially that one about Jesus Christ. Five years after Handel finished Messiah, he wrote an oratorio about a major Jewish figure named Judas Maccabeus. Judas shall set the captive free and lead us on to victory. The story told by Handel is about the struggle in Jerusalem between Jews and an invading empire in about 165 BCE. The empire not only wants to be in charge, but they want to destroy, to literally destroy the Jewish religion. Well, Judas Maccabeus emerges as this rallying leader of the Jews. CPR classical host David Ginder says Handel didn't set out to write about this Jewish struggle. There was a conflict going on in Britain at the time that had just been put down. England finally ended the conflict, the Jacobite Revolution, on the battlefield in April of 1746. And Handel was trying to find some kind of a biblical story to write a celebratory piece. And he looked and looked and looked and finally... Ah, I can use that. I'm going to go with that. So this unlikely scenario of a Jewish story being told by a Christian was born. The most recognizable part of Handel's Judas Maccabeus is the chorus, See the Conquering Hero Comes. It happens after Judah and the Jews win the battle against the invaders. This chorus was so popular, Beethoven wrote variations on it for piano and cello. The tune was also borrowed in modern times to create a Hanukkah song called Hava Narima, or Let's Lift Up. This version is by Jewish musician and educator Cindy Paley. The story of Hanukkah has been passed down from generation to generation of Jews. And the ones who like to tell it most are kids. There were these brothers, and they were the Maccabees. 11-year-old Maddie Judd attends Hebrew school at Temple Emanuel in Denver. I sat down with her and some of her schoolmates to talk about the story of Hanukkah, beginning with Jude Maccabee, his brothers, and their army. The Maccabees were small but furious. That's 10-year-old Ari Greer. The Maccabees did win the battle, but there's another miracle of Hanukkah that kids like to tell most. The miracle of Hanukkah is that, um, that the oil lasted for eight nights, not just one. During the struggle, the Holy Temple in Jerusalem was filled with Greek idols. After the Jews won, they had to cleanse the temple and rededicate it. Hanukkah means dedication in Hebrew. But in order to rededicate the temple, they needed an eternal flame to illuminate the sanctuary. 
and there was only one jar of oil, says 12-year-old Abby Kolodny. They lit the oil and didn't expect it to last very long. The miracle? It stayed for eight days and eight nights, which is why Hanukkah is eight days and eight nights long. That's the popular story. But Rabbi Joseph Black of Temple Emmanuel says there's another possible story. A man by the name of Judah and his brothers and his father started a rebellion not only against the Hellenized Greeks, but against those Jews who followed them. So it was really a civil war. I'm sorry if I'm bursting anybody's bubble here. The traditionalists won and drove out the Jews who wanted to assimilate. And then they rededicated the temple. So whether it's true that there was an oil that burned for eight days or whether it was a civil war, the truth is probably somewhere in the middle. But it doesn't matter because when we light the Hanukkah menorah and we think about what that light symbolizes, light in the midst of darkness, that to me is an essential truth that is vitally important. Jews celebrate Hanukkah tonight, the holiday known as the Festival of Lights. I'm Rebecca Romberg, Colorado Public Radio. And CPR Classical Airs handles Judas Maccabeus December 9th, the last night of Hanukkah. Listening to that story, it occurred to us that while it's about a Christian who wrote Jewish music, there's a strong tradition of Jews writing Christmas tunes. Thinking of Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, Silver Bells, and Santa Baby. Here's a version of that tune by Denver vocalist Danette Hollowell from our holiday extravaganza last year. By the way, this year's show airs December 14th. Santa baby, put a fur coat under the tree for me. I've been an awful good girl, Santa baby. So hurry down that chimney tonight. Santa cutie, a 54 convertible to light blue. I'll wait up for you, dear Santa baby, and hurry down the chimney tonight. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News.